0: This is the third podcast in a series on the Apostle Paul. I know you're all anxious to get into the Midrash, but I really want to spend more time on Paul's early life because I think it just helps us understand Paul and his writings. His writings can be very difficult to understand if, if you don't know him and you don't know about his early life. So I'm going to be reading some passages from my book, The Law is Not a Curse, Paul's Midrash in Galatians. This was the first book I wrote after I received my dissertation for my uh, PhD in biblical studies. And it is directed to the academic community because that's the way I was trained in my, my dissertation, was to address everything that I did to the academic community. But if you question at all my conclusions You'll find in the book quite a bit of supporting documentation in the form of footnotes, and there's a bibliography at the end of each chapter. But for now, let me just kind of make it fun for you. We're dealing with Paul's early life, and I want to start with his vision on the road to Damascus, which changed his life dramatically and irrevocably. We can identify with this pivotal experience because our own lives never follow a straight path and unwelcome obstacles often occur in our own lives so that we don't follow a straight path either. I love a Chinese proverb about this and this is referring to something that you can put into your own life. Every crisis is an opportunity. Now, Paul certainly had an intense crisis in his life when Yeshua confronted him on the road to Damascus. We'll see how he turns it into an opportunity, and we should be able to do the same thing. Paul's vision on the road to Damascus was a life-changing event. So were the equally significant crises that pursued him throughout the rest of his life. The way he responded shaped his ministry and ultimately created Christian church that we know today. Now, Paul conveys a daunting list of hurdles. He says, I was in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. So he is confronted with crises in his life, and he's going to overcome these crises in a way that he turned into opportunity. So, as traumatic as these physical challenges may appear, threats from those who were closest to Paul precipitated his greatest agony, but also offered the most profound opportunities to finish his completed work. Now, sandwiched between Paul's physical obstacles in 2 Corinthians, emerge uh, the most towering trials he ever faced. My heart just... Tugs here when I hear this, he tells us he was in dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers among false brethren. To understand how Paul triumphed over these challenges, we must first consider the historical and cultural environment that shaped his life and the events that molded his character. This glimpse of Paul's early ministry will build a foundation on which we can approach an understanding of his first century methods of Midrash. This is where we're all headed, you know, but I think you just have to understand Paul before you can get into those methods. Reconstructing Paul's early Christian life is not an easy task. The scarcity of details in scripture leaves large gaps. Now, in scripture, much of The information about Paul will be in Acts, and I refer to that as Luke's account, and and in Galatians. Fortunately, there is a surprising contribution of supplemental information. Archaeology helps us visualize Tarsus, where Paul spent his childhood, and Jerusalem, where he studied under the sage Gamliel. Ancient Greek and Latin texts aid our understanding of educational training the political environment in which disputes were handled, the nature of religious practices, and even the craft of tent-making. Because we we hear that Paul was a tent-maker. As for Paul's persecution of Christians before he became a believer in Christ, there is irony in this part of the story. Because in Paul's later gospel, the message prompted the same hostile maltreatment against Paul that he had inflicted earlier against the Christians. For Paul, the pre-Christian persecutor, as well as those who later persecuted the Apostle Paul, the motive was religious zeal. And we get Christians who say, you know, this is the way I want my country to be, and I want everybody else to do the same way. I want it, you know, to be a law in our country so that we can have schools, without secular teachings, so that we can forbid homosexuality, so we can do this, we can do that, we can do this, we can do that. And I want it in law, and I want it to happen, and I want a country that is in alignment with me. That's so typical of Christianity. Relating the two periods of persecution in Paul's life, you know, the early persecution, he was persecuting the Christians, and the later persecutions, they were persecuting him. (laughs) Can help us reconstruct the challenges that Paul faced when he entered Damascus as a new Jewish believer in Christ. After Yeshua had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, the astonishment and excitement from his experience with the resurrected Yeshua would have been intense. He could see nothing because his vision of the Lord had left him blind. The men who had traveled with Paul from Jerusalem led him into the city and brought him to the home of a Jew named Judas. Paul was also a Jew, known to his kinsmen by his Jewish name Sha'ul, and they considered him one of their own. Judas would have received Sha'ul with hospitality and concern. Standing in contrast and tension to Sha'ul is Ananias, who belonged to a small but growing group that believed Yeshua of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. Most Jews had dismissed this seemingly preposterous claim about the crucified commoner from Galilee. In fact, vehement reaction among Jews in Jerusalem had led to an intensity of hostility and the stoning of Stephen. Many Christian believers had fled from this persecution, and Ananias may have been one of them. But now the danger was following Ananias to Damascus in the person of Shaul, Shaul had not merely persecuted Christians in Jerusalem, but he was also trying to destroy them. To the Galatians, he wrote, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the Church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. On his journey to Damascus, Shaul was representing the chief religious leaders of Judaism. His mission, was to arrest Christians and return them to Jerusalem for trial. The punishment would have been a severe lashing, or the devastating, penalty of excommunication from the Jewish community. Neither the Jewish high priest nor the Sanhedrin had power to administer the death penalty. However, Roman officials employed it frequently, especially against a threat of sedition and manipulation of Roman authorities by deceit and innuendo was not uncommon. In any case, the reaction of Ananias to Shaul's arrival in Damascus is quite clear. Ananias faced the prospect of meeting Shaul with trepidation expressing his fear to the Lord, he agonized. I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Yet Ananias obeyed the Lord's command. Placing his hands on Sha'ul, the blindness was cured. That does not mean the Christian community in Damascus welcomed Shaul with open arms, We do not hear that Sha'ul left the home of Judas to live with Ananias. Sha'ul, the persecutor from Jerusalem, was now ready to witness his vision of the Lord and the miracle of his healing. He apparently perceived his new role as a prophet called by God. To the Galatians, he later described his prophetic mission as an echo of God's call to Jeremiah. What we read... Um, in Galatians, this is what Paul says. Paul says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, meaning to set apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations, meaning to the Gentiles. Now, what Jeremiah had said is, When God, who had sent me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So what's happening is that Paul is echoing Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a recognized great prophet of the people of Israel. And Paul is saying, God has now made me a prophet for his people. They weren't trusting him. They were very afraid of him, and he was trying to get them to trust him. As if this calling from God was not enough to convince others to listen to his message, Paul had also experienced this miraculous healing of an equally miraculous blindness, caused by his vision of Yeshua on the road to Damascus. So this is what Paul was telling everybody. Paul may have expected a welcoming response from the Christian community after he entered the city, but we hear that Ananias was in fear and trembling at the thought of meeting Shaul the persecutor. Paul's own words that we see in the New Testament suggests a positive reception by the Christian community in Damascus. I mean, can you imagine Paul? I mean, here he's had this incredible experience. And he's now a believer that Yeshua is the Messiah and nobody's listening to him and they're they're afraid of him. At this time in the history of the early church, most Christians were Jews who had come to believe that Yeshua was the promised Messiah. They continued to attend the synagogue and they followed Jewish traditions and religious practices. We also know that some Gentiles were attracted to Judaism and were joining in synagogue activities. So the new Christian community in Damascus would likely have been participating in the synagogue. And in the synagogue would be mostly Jews, but a few Gentiles. Saul would have gone to the synagogue in Damascus to witness his vision of the Lord. Unlike our churches today, which are primarily places of worship, the ancient synagogue was also a place for Torah study and community gathering. That is not to say that worship did not occur there, but dialogue and discussion would have played an important role. So when Paul is going to the synagogue, he's not just going on the Sabbath during the Sabbath worship, because every day during the week, there would be people there studying the Torah, and he he would have gone to the synagogue and he would have been talking about what had happened to him. Later, when Paul was in Thessalonica, Athens and Corinth, we hear that he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So the God-fearing Gentiles are becoming Jewish, is what they are. Um, they haven't converted to Judaism, but they're, they're believing in Judaism and they're in the synagogues. The Christian believers, I don't think, would have been in the synagogue because they were not welcomed at this point. So we can imagine Saul in the Damascus synagogue, now referring by the Greek name Paul, you know, because he had been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. So he's changing his name from Shaul to Paul. Of course, in Greek, it's Paulos. And he would have been fervently witnessing his vision of Yeshua and the miracle of healing his blindness. We have seen that Ananias and probably his fellow Christians also were responding with nervous trepidation. But how did non-believing Jews in the synagogue respond? Paul's accounts of later Jewish persecution offer significant clues. Luke tells us, for example, that the Jews were jealous of the Christians. And Paul confirms this allegation by citing Deuteronomy 32 verse 21 i will make you jealous by that which is not a nation by a nation without understanding will i anger you that's in romans chapter 10 verse 19 jealousy is associated with envy and anger this intense reaction to the uh, vocal new christian believers is evident in the story of paul's later missionary travels jews plotted against him in greece also in Iconium, and in Jerusalem. Paul tells us that five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. And he walked away from the stoning, by the way. It didn't kill him. The Jews apparently received Paul's message with suspicion and hostility. But we have to ask why. At this early stage in Paul's Christian career, the conflict over circumcision and study of the law was probably not yet an issue. The fundamental controversy in this early period seems to have centered on the concept of the promised Messiah. And folks, that is the issue with Jews today. We learn from Luke that the Christian orator Apollos vigorously encountered Jews in public debate, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Paul himself testified to Jews in Corinth that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. In Thessalonica, he was explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Paul was likely preaching the same central message in the Damascus Synagogue. Yet we know from the Second Temple literature that the Jews were likely demanding how could Jesus of Nazareth be the promised Messiah? They were expecting a Messiah who would defeat the despised Roman conquerors and initiate God's kingdom, not the crucified Yeshua. It is not difficult to imagine Paul's hesitation in the first months of his ministry to the critical questions. And these are questions that the Jews would have been just throwing at him. How could Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah? Yet Paul must have been devastated by the opposition he experienced in Damascus from both Gentiles and Jews who failed to believe the gospel he was preaching. How did Paul respond to Gentile fear and Jewish hostility? Paul tells us he traveled from Damascus to Arabia. Paul explains, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, and then, after that, I returned back to Damascus. Despite the rhetorical nature of this passage, in which Paul is demonstrating his authority to the Galatians, we should not dismiss the honest urgency of Paul's narrative. He informs us that he went away to Arabia. It has become increasingly popular for scholars to surmise that Paul went to the Nabataean kingdom and the geographic area identified as Arabia by the Roman author Strabo. It is likely there was a Nabataean section in Damascus, which had become a great center for trade. Paul may have been witnessing the gospel to these merchants from Nabataea, With so many gaps in the early life of Paul, it is possible to insert the Nabataean story as a piece of our puzzle. However, this scenario overlooks significant clues in Paul's own words. We may be missing something essential, and as you can gather, I have not concluded that he went to the Nabataean kingdom. In his allegory of Hagar and Sarah, Paul refers to Mount Sinai in Arabia. Although the exact site of Mount Sinai is disputed today, it is located somewhere within Strabo's large geographic area of Arabia. What would have persuaded Paul to leave Damascus and go to Arabia? Now, the author, well-known author and theologian Longnecker believes that Paul was seeking a place for reflection and study, which I agree with. And another author identifies Arabia as the specific location of Mount Sinai. And I agree with that also. Now, given Paul's high level of training in the Hebrew scriptures and his self-understanding that he was a prophet and apostle, it seems likely that he went to Mount Sinai in Arabia to seek direction from God. Because he must have been asking, you know, why is nobody listening to me? We have already seen that Paul's sense of calling is reminiscent of God's call to the prophet Jeremiah. Now we can surmise that his journey to Mount Sinai in Arabia also echoes the prophet Elijah, who faced a similar agonizing experience and needed to speak to God. Elijah traveled to Mount Sinai. We know this. It's in Scripture and in 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah went to Mount Sinai to seek guidance from God, and he heard God there in a still, small voice. What did Paul hear when he went to Mount Sinai? We have no way of knowing because neither he nor Luke in in Acts mentions it. And we can imagine that God would have sent him back to Damascus. But why would God have instructed Paul to return to Damascus rather than traveling to Jerusalem, which was the center of Christianity at the time and the seat of its leaders? When Paul returned to Damascus, the story is silent. Had the fear and hostility dissipated? I don't think so. Did his gospel message begin to fall on repetitive ears? The story most likely would have told us if it had, so I don't think that either. It was three years. He spent three years in Damascus. Before he finally left to travel to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, what happened during those three years in Damascus? Well, I'm going to stop here. Um, This is a wonderful story. And in, in the next podcast. I'm going to tell you what happened when he got back to Damascus. And what's really exciting is after three years in Damascus, he went to Jerusalem and he met with uh, Peter and I think James, the two of them. And and it's just a fascinating story. And most people don't know it. They just go right to the writings of Paul, the theology of what the church is teaching them. So I think it's important that we really get to know Paul and get a feeling for him and, and the agony that he went through Uh, when he first became a Christian believer. I mean, this took a long time. He was in Damascus. He went to Mount Sinai, came back to Damascus for three years before meeting with the Jewish leaders. So I will see you in the next podcast when we will pick up with the story of Paul and what happens when he returns to Damascus and then goes to Jerusalem. So I will see you in the next, or I will uh, talk to you in the next podcast.